Well, thank you very much. I am delighted to be here. Um, Durham has been very hospitable to me over the years, and that's been true on this visit as well. So Thomas Swalwell is hardly a household name. Uh, he had many famous contemporaries here in England, Thomas More, Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey, Anne Boleyn, um, as well as famous contemporaries elsewhere, people like Martin Luther and Charles V. So who was Thomas Swalwell? Swalwell was an active member of the last generation of the Benedictine monks at the Durham Priory. He entered the monastery in 1483 and was ordained in 1486. He became a Bachelor of Theology at Oxford in 1496 and then a doctor in 1503. The remainder of his life was spent in Durham or traveling on priory business. And although he was never prior, he held a number of significant monastic offices. And, a number of, and on a number of occasions served as the official representative of the prior or the priory. Along with his administrative duties, he participated in the liturgical life of the community, heard confessions, preached to various audiences, and taught young monks. Swalwell died late in 1539, just before the priory was dissolved under Henry VIII. Now, I was introduced to Thomas Swalwell in the autumn of 2010 through the helpful offices of a number of people here this afternoon, and especially the late Alan Piper. For several decades, I had been studying resources, such as model sermon collections and pastoral manuals, produced by the late medieval church to help pastors do their work. And I was eager to do a case study of an individual who used those books. When asked about my current research, I often describe it as looking over Thomas Swalwell's shoulder, watching him read and make notes. His books resourced his life as he appropriated scholarly, prescriptive, and devotional materials for his service to God and the education of others. The notes in his book, books provide windows onto a monastic individual living in this locale in a time of religious change fueled by humanist impulses, the introduction of Lutheran ideas, and changes imposed by the crown leading to the dissolution of the monasteries. In many ways, Swalwell was typical of educated church leaders on the eve of the Reformation. What is atypical about him is how well documented his life is. As the exciting digital, there's what I want, where I want to be. As the exciting priory digitization project moves forward, today I have chosen to highlight a few of his many annotated books, books that supported different facets of his life. Now, I recognize that there would not have been tidy divisions between one, set, one task and the next for him. <coughs> Lines between fields such as preaching and teaching would have been crossed many times, as were lines between the formation of novices and his own devotions. A portrait of Swalwell's life does emerge from these books, revealing conscientiousness and good organization, intellectual curiosity and theological engagement, practicality, and devotion. He seems like the kind of monk who kept the priory going, faithful but not flamboyant, seeking to live up to godly expectations while keeping current on theological and historical developments. So, taking the various facets of his life in turn, let's begin with Swalwell, the studious monk, um, in his day, as many as 30% of the Durham monks were sent to Oxford to study, although not all of them took degrees. Theology there was understood to be a practical science, ideally to be animated by charity and put into practice through preaching and confession. 
among all of Swalwell's extant books, and there are like 40 or 50 of them, there are a lot of them, um, there are three that have particularly copious marginalia. Two are theology texts that he would have used at Oxford, and these are Scotus commentaries on Lombard's sentences, book one on God and book four on the sacraments. As he continued to read, learn, and teach throughout his life, he returned to these books, adding more and more notes. The third of these copiously annotated books is Peter Comestor's Historia Scholastica. It's a 12th century attempt to offer a universal history of the world from Genesis to the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul in Rome. Completed around 1173, it became an important source of popular biblical knowledge. Now, Swalwell may well have begun studying his comestor at Oxford. His copy was printed in Basel in 1486, the same year he began his studies. And it is a fascinating example of a scholar at work. Some sections are unmarked. Some have Swalwell's typical keywords in the margin and underlining, particularly underlining of biblical passages. But most interesting are the sections that have densely packed margins where our scholar made his book even more useful by adding to it portions of another work on the Bible, the Postilla of Nicholas of Lyra. Nicholas was a 14th century Franciscan known for his literally grounded biblical exegesis and respect for Jewish interpretations of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament portions of the Historia Scholastica, Swalwell's additions from Nicholas indicate significant interest in the setup of important biblical narratives, such as the creation, fall, Noah, and the calling of Abraham. He adds material on the suffering of the Israelites and on the call of Moses to return to Egypt, but not on the story of the Exodus or the Joseph narratives. He's quite selective. Swalwell reveals an interest in history, enhancing the historical books, particularly on the rise and fall of kings. He also shows, stories, shows interest in stories like Daniel, Esther, Susanna, and Bell and the Dragon that show faithfulness under pressure. In the New Testament, on the table, of, the table of contents, that was that one that you saw at the very beginning. It seems to have been out of order. I, I don't know what happened. This, this was sent from the States by magical means. So if you can remember that New Testament table of contents, you'll see that Swalwell has written which Bible chapter goes with each chapter in Comestor. It's a useful addition that we see in quite a number of his books. The stories he annotates with long sections from Lyra sometimes tell of conflict, such as the stories of the sons of Zebedee requesting prestigious seats in Jesus' kingdom, stories that critique hypocrisy, as when Jesus urges his followers to follow the words of the Pharisees, but not their deeds, and stories that support traditional teachings and practices, as when Jesus claims to be the Son of God or in answering various questions about Easter. And these are themes that are, show up widely across his various annotations. Now here on this slide, we can look over Swalwell's shoulder at Comester's chapter on the Pool of Bethesda from John 5 to see what he's doing, how he augment, augments his book. In the story, an angel periodically stirs the water, and the first person to get in was healed. And Jesus comes along and heals a man who had been lying on his mat for many years. Early on, Swalwell has added a few explanatory notes taken from Nicholas, noting that Jewish men had to go to Jerusalem for three major festivals, that rainwater was collected in this pool for the purpose of washing the sacrificial animals, 
and that the pool had five porticos so that five people could do this task simultaneously. And such notes are quite typical of his interest in historical detail and his focus on the literal sense of scripture. And then these are followed by longer editions that highlight theological interpretations of this incident. Peter Comester reports that some say that the Queen of Sheba had a vision that someone would die on the beams in Solomon's house and the death of that person would end Solomon's rule. And so to prevent such an outcome, Solomon buried the beams in the ground and then the pool of Bethesda was built where the beams had been buried. And so when Christ's passion is near, Christ needs to die on these beams. The beams themselves rise up to the surface and cause the motion of the water that is healing. Now, Comester writes that this is not authentic. (laughs) But Nicholas provides two interpretations, which Swalwell then copies into the margin almost verbatim. The first is sacramental, claiming that the stirring of the water is a figure of baptism. In the pool, the body of one person at a time was healed by the hidden work of God, but in baptism, as many people as come are healed in soul by the hidden power of the word of God. The second interpretation says that the angel moves the water when coming down to reverence the wood of the cross, sort of a cross between the two stories, showing that human nature is healed from the illness of sin by the cross. And then as the gospel text continues, the healed man is instructed by Jesus to get up, take his mat, and walk, and he's then chastised by the authorities for doing this on the Sabbath. Comester reports this, but does not elaborate. So Swalwell has added material from Nicholas asserting that it is wrong to say that corporal works could not be done on the Sabbath, that indeed they were permitted if done to the glory of God. And so by carrying his mat, this man was glorifying God just as those who are liberated from prison glorify God by carrying their chains to the shrines of the saints. So such historical, theological, and pastoral interpretations would be useful to Swalwell as a studious preacher and teacher, the key tasks for which he had been sent to Oxford by the Priory. Oops, wrong side. Now, turning to Swalwell, the administrator. As already mentioned, administrative tasks were characteristic features of the lives of medieval monks. Swalwell served as terror for 10 years, from 1504 to 1514. He was the land agent for the priory's main estates. Quite a number of times he was appointed as the proctor or commissary of the priory, and so was charged with presiding at synods, collecting revenues, conducting visitations, and representing the priory at Benedictine general chapters in York and Canterbury. There was a small collection of books near the prior's lodgings to help with business with outsiders. And we know that Swalwell augmented that collection. And most of the books in that collection had to do with canon law. And so to represent this administrative side of his monastic life, I've chosen to focus on Linwood's Provincial, a collection of canon law and commentary on it for the province of England. Swalwell annotated several copies of this most useful book, and my focus volume for today was printed in Oxford in 1483. It has a contents list, foliation, and numbering of constitutions provided by Swalwell, as well as lots of marginal notes. And the annotations show the range of Swalwell's concerns. Some are theological, places in the afterlife, theological and cardinal virtues, types of prayer. Some are procedural and jurisdictional, synods, canonical purgations, ecclesiastical trials and confessions. 
and many are financial. Mortuaries, simony, spiritual and temporal presentations, the alienation of church property, tithes, whether one can buy and sell on festival days. And many pertain to monastic life itself, clerical privileges, tonsures and benefices, rules about eating meat for monks, and what benefits one receives when entering a monastery. Tithes will provide an example of canon law in action, as it were. There were several types of tithes in use in the later Middle Ages, and custom carried great weight in this area. Within Linwood's section on tithes, Swalwell has devoted much of his attention to sheep and wool. His notes include basic expectations for tithing, such as a tithe is to be paid from the wool of sheep, rabbits, lambs, goats, and woolly skins. Concerning the paying of tithes, concerning ten lambs or sheep jointly owned by several people that ought to be tithed, and then response to that issue. And then spring, largely speaking, is the time for the offering. Now, as the text discusses the seasonal movement of sheep between pastures, the questions get more detailed. And so Swalwell writes how the tithe is to be given for animals pastured in different parishes. And then comes a discussion he has marked tithes of animals, whether they are predial or mixed, and how they were categorized would depend how much revenue they generated depended on whether you got to deduct your operating expenses or not. So opinion one says that they are predial, that is land-based, if they stay in one parish. Opinion two says that such tithes ought to be mixed to the degree that they arise from human labor. And then decision on the question indicates that if the domesticated animals stay in one parish for a year, a predial tithe is owed, and the wool and milk ought to be given within a year. And then a personal tithe is also owed from the one who tended the animals. And Swalwell also notes how the curate can settle up with those who ought to tithe. So when sheep divide their time, the tithe also ought to be divided between parishes. The ongoing responsibilities given to Swalwell suggest that he was good at managing such sensitive negotiations. Swalwell the preacher. Preaching was an important vehicle for sharing the monk's learning. Indeed, as already mentioned, education for preaching was one of the reasons monasteries like Durham sent monks like Swalwell to Oxford. Even so, the sermons of most such people went unrecorded. Swalwell annotated patristic, medieval, and contemporary sermon collections, as well as works to support preaching, but no manuscripts of his sermons are known to be excellent. <coughs> In Durham, Swalwell would have had several audiences, including the monks of the priory, the people of the town on Sunday afternoon sermons in the Galilee Chapel, and mixed audiences at synods. The Rosarium Sermonum of Bernardinus de Busti, printed in 1502, exemplifies this aspect of Swalwell's life. Bernardinus was an observant Franciscan who put together this book for preachers, as he says, by excerpting choice flowers from various books. And so as we look over Swalwell's shoulder, we can see him selecting his own flowers from this flower garden as he <coughs> prepares to preach. Bernardinus Sermon 13 takes Matthew 15:28 as its theme. Woman, great is your faith. This is a passage that comes up in the Benedictine lectionary for the second Sunday of Lent, a time typically devoted to lay catechesis. And so we might imagine a catechetical sermon in the Galilee Chapel as the outcome of Swalwell's notes here. So, Bernardinus' book provides a sermon in three major divisions, 
preceded by an introduction. The introduction centers on definitions of God, the focus of faith. The first major division is labeled definition. It gives 12 ways faith can be accepted, describes it as foundational for the spiritual life, and then takes up the definition of faith given in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The second major division is named obligation and takes up the things that must be believed through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And here it includes the story of the creed's composition, gives scriptural support for each article, and then there's a long discussion of indulgences in conjunction with the forgiveness of sins. And then it concludes with the importance of learning the creed. The third major division, major division is called impediment and takes up lust, avarice, and pride, three vices that impede faith and lead one to heresy. So what does Swalwell select, judging by his annotations? In the introduction, he simply notes what God is as the text gives definitions such as uncreated good exceeding all understanding and we believe you to be the highest good greater than which nothing can be thought. Anselm, thank you. In Bernardina's first major division, Swalwell skips the 12 ways that faith is accepted but does comment on its foundational role. And he writes why faith is called the foundation of all virtues and of the spiritual edifice. And he also notes exemplum or illustrative story about how it is fundamental. As Hebrews 11.1 is presented, Swalwell adds a few notes, such as how faith is called the conviction of things unseen and concerning the faith of St. Ignatius. Uh, this story re this refers to the story of the early church bishop and martyr upon whose heart Christ's name was said to have been found written in gold letters at his death. Moving into the second major division, Swalwell briefly notes figure of the 12 apostles and the 12 articles like the 12 stones of a foundation wall of the city of Jerusalem and like the 12 apostles these articles are the foundation of the church of God. So he's reiterating the same theme of foundational nature of faith that he had earlier. The explanation of the various articles would likely be the heart of such a catechetical sermon. And Swalwell writes and underlines and numbers. He's really paying close attention here. The places in scripture where the articles of faith are to be found. He also gives cross-references to other works that are explanations of the creed that he might draw on in his preaching. Whoops, I didn't want to go there yet. Hang on. Back. Previous, previous, where's previous? Let me see if I can do it this way. No? Where's previous? No. There, thank you. There we go. Thank you. So, Bernardina spends a lot of time on Article 11, the forgiveness of sins, much of which is devoted to indulgences. Swalwell's underlining and notes in this section show him tracking standard church teaching. He writes, definition of indulgence. Indulgences are included in Article 11 whether the Pope can give indulgences. He also notes some pastoral concerns and numbers them. These five impede the working of an indulgence for someone. How indulgences avail in purgatory for the per dead in purgatory with exemplum. On the dignity of the indulgence granted to St. Francis by Pope Honorius III. And these three goods come from an indulgence. Following this long digression, Bernardina's sermon turns to the 12th article of the creed, the <clears throat> resurrection of the dead. 
And Swalwell has written Conclusion, where Bernardinus says, therefore all Christians ought to know the Apostles' Creed. And then he has underlined a reference to canon law, asserting that the Creed and the Lord's Prayer are the most important texts to learn. And then at the end of this section, Swalwell writes, Note how well the rich man was able to learn the Lord's Prayer. And here Bernardinus tells a story about a merchant who learned the Lord's Prayer when the priest instructed the parishioners to give phrases of the Lord's Prayer as their names when they came to do business with him. So this meant anybody can learn the Creed or the Lord's Prayer. So perhaps our preacher would use this to goad his listeners who were reluctant to memorize. And then this brings us to the third section here. No comments on lust. (laughs) Avarice has just one note. Note the miracle. And this is a story told by Alexander Hales about a man who lost his fortune playing dice He prayed to win, and God answered his prayer. I'm not sure how that's an impediment, but that's what it's got. Um, Pride receives just one note. Against those desiring to know what is beyond humans. See also against the curious in part two, folio 98. Swalwell cross-references things quite readily. He had an amazingly well-organized brain. So, Swalwell might have preached a catechetical sermon where most of the material came from the first two major divisions of Bernardina's sermon, and it might have been enlivened by several exempla. The scriptural basis of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed would be presented, and indulgences would figure in his discussion of the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps he might bring in the indulgences for visiting St. Cuthbert's Shrine either along with or instead of the Franciscan examples that Bernardinus had provided. He would likely end with an exhortation to learn the creed and the Lord's Prayer, along with a couple of warnings against avarice and pride. Now, interestingly, Swalwell returned to this sermon later in his life. Um, His handwriting got shakier as he got older, Alan Piper had dated that transition to 1533 to 34. So if you can see, the bottom line is is spikier than the one above it, besides being in a different color of ink. When he returned to this passage, he made additional notes, most especially in the section where discussion of the indulgences is coming to the fore, in particular where the practice of indulgences is being questioned. Um, He may have been seeking more material for his catechetical preaching. He may have simply been shoring up his own understanding. For example, Bernardinus asserts that faith is required for indulgences to work. And Swalwell writes, I am strong against those not believing in indulgences. Note the exemplum. And here Bernardinus relates a story asserting that one must have faith in indulgences in order to escape the pains of purgatory by them. And this is said to have been taught in Luke 7, let it be done to you according to your faith. But faith alone is insufficient, and Swalwell also highlights Bernardinus' claim that the conditions of an indulgence have pastoral value and must be fulfilled. Swalwell also adds a diagramming note, diagramming the claims that the creed can be, the articles of the creed can be believed either implicitly or explicitly by the simple. Bernardinus teaches that the unity of divine essence and the trinity of persons must be believed explicitly and preached accordingly. Making the sign of the cross helps convey this message because it's done in the name, not the names, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Swalwell writes, the articles ought to be remembered on various feast days. This suggests that he would indeed preach this material 
when the faithful and the not-so-faithful would be gathered. So Swalwell affirms tradition and expresses, stresses explicit faith in the Trinity as England is heading into the Reformation. The monastic office that Swalwell Swalwell held the longest was that of almoner. For a year in 1515 and then from 1528 to the end of his life. This gave him responsibility for the almonry school, which taught boys who lived on the priory grounds, often relatives of the monks, as well as boys from the town and the sons of local gentry. As we look over his shoulder, we can see him picking out material that is suitable for instruction in the school. And I've chosen two books in this section to highlight because of the interplay between English and Latin in them. The first, Bartholomaeus Anglicus's De Proprietatibus Rerum, On the Properties of Things, is a small encyclopedia giving short discussions on all sorts of topics, some theological, but most natural. The book is in Latin, but Swalwell has glossed it in both Latin and English. For a number of topical headings, Swalwell has given the English equivalent. So bitumine is noted as glue, G-L-E-W-E, and color viridi as green, G-R-E-N. Um, it's a very well-used book. It's rather dog-eared. It gives the impression of having served him as a reference for most of his lifetime. Along with substantial annotations, he's added a 31-page glossary index at the back. And each entry has two numbers. The first is the book. The second is the chapter. And this glossary runs from abdita to zuccarum, from privy places to sugar. By the end, it's clearly in his old hand. So I'm going to just offer two brief examples from this delightful book. Um, (laughs) Our copy doesn't have these cool illustrations, but these did come from another version of um, this book. So book 18, chapter 63, is entitled De Leone, and Swalwell has written in The King of Beasts. And next to Bartholomew's discussion of peaceful lions, Swalwell notes that they have crispa hair and jubum neck, curly hair and bearded necks. Those who have straight hair are more violent. Swalwell notes in Latin the interesting fact that lion cubs sleep for three days after their birth and they are finally woken up by their father's roaring. (laughs) The text discusses the nature of this king of beasts. They do not get angry unless they are injured. They protect others who are injured. They allow captives to go home. And they don't eat people unless they are very hungry. (laughs) Perhaps you would like to learn more about milk. Um, From Swalwell's notes... We learn that milk comes from blood, that it comes from kernels or mammary glands, that is produced after birth, that the fat part of milk is called cheese, that rennet coagulates, that the milk of a black woman is better than the milk of a white woman, that milk can be sweet, medium, or acidic, and so on and so on. And then the chapter on Milk is followed by specific ones on camel milk, cow milk, and goat milk. The second book that I've selected for this section on Swalwell the Teacher is Ranulf Higdon's Polychronicon. This is a work of general history up through the reign of Edward III, who died in 1377, composed by the Benedictine Higdon in the first half of the 14th century and then translated into English. An addendum was later added that included subsequent events in the Hundred Years' War. Swalwell's copy was printed in Westminster in English in 1495. It's lightly annotated, 
but all of the notes seem to be in his more frail older hand. The volume begins with a dialogue between the author and a clerk explaining that it is being translated so that more people can understand and have cunning information and lore. Swalwell follows this dialogue with marginalia, recognizing the pedagogical utility of the book. Living in turbulent times, Swalwell's interest in history shines through. One of the topics that attracts his attention in the volume is a conflict during the reign of Richard I between monks, the king, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. According to Higdon, Baldwin of Ford had taken the privilege of electing the Archbishop away from the monks at Canterbury and had begun to build a church to house secular canons right near the monks' church. The monks appealed to the Pope and eventually the partially partially built church was torn down. So Swalwell has written here, process from perfection to less perfect. The chronicler marvels that a man like Baldwin, who had been an archdeacon, then a white monk, then an abbot, then the Bishop of Worcester, then the Archbishop of Canterbury, would bring in men of a less perfect form of life than Benedictine monks, a a sentiment Swalwell might have shared. Swalwell was also attentive to royal appropriation of church wealth. He highlights that Richard was imprisoned in Germany and then ransomed for 100,000 pounds of silver. He likes numbers. He writes them in the margin. In order to pay this, this ransom, the wealth of the white monks and the canons was taken and the rings of prelates, vessels, crosses, chalices, and the gold from 17 shrines was melted down. And here Swalwell has corrected this to 18 The gold from 18 shrines was melted down. As the Polychronicon considers the reign of Henry VI, Swalwell has made a few notes that might be seen as shaping contemporary history. Perhaps we can imagine a seasoned teacher explaining to his students how we got here, pausing on the possessions of Henry VI in Normandy and France, the girl captain, Joan of Arc, and the cost to the English of this marriage, I think I have a slide of that, yes, the cost of this marriage to the English, see above on folio 334. He's referring to the marriage of Henry VI to Margaret of Anjou, which gave Anjou and mine back to France. So grammar, science, history, all subjects for boys' lessons, and all building toward the study of the Bible. By Swalwell's time, the monks of Durham had been devoted to the study of scripture for centuries. Swalwell continued this tradition throughout his career. And here I have chosen the Commentarii in Quattro Evangelia of the French humanist Jacques Lefebvre d'Etaples, which Swalwell purchased for five shillings in the year 1510, the year after it was printed. Although Lefebvre d'Etaples remained in the Roman Catholic Church, He was the most Protestant of Swalwell's authors. In this volume, once again, the notes are in Swalwell's older hand, suggesting that significant time passed after its purchase before he annotated the book Time for Lutheran Ideas to Circulate in England. The volume contains commentary on Matthew and Mark, but all of Swalwell's notes are in the preface and in Matthew. Although it's difficult to assert with confidence, Lefebvre d'Etape aimed to shed new light on familiar texts which seem congenial to Swalwell. Swalwell writes, We are in those lands where the author says that all who serve in Christian lands need to be focused on the gospel, popes and clergy, along with kings, princes, and magnates. Further underlining and notes stress the centrality of the gospel. Conclusio marks the message that all should work hard to preserve and strengthen the gospel, for it is our sole hope for eternal life. And doctrinal corollary is written next to a hortatory passage. Therefore, 
act popes, act kings, act with generous hearts, awaken nations everywhere to the light of the gospel, to the true light of God, inspire to life, get rid of whatever hinders duty. Is Swalwell thinking about the relationship between his king and the pope? Is he wanting Henry to keep on being known as the defender of the faith? Turning to the Gospel of Matthew, we find confirmation of Swalwell's now familiar interests in the literal sense of the text, history, and the discussion of traditional doctrines. And I have just a couple of examples here. In chapter 1, Mary's betrothal to Joseph and the question of her subsequent virginity is discussed. Lefebvre analyzes the grammar involved. And Swalwell writes, what a married woman is and a marriage, what it is to disgrace. And then Swalwell indicates whether Mary and Joseph vowed to remain chaste, where Lefebvre offers various arguments remaining attentive to the literal sense of the text. Swalwell's notes track the arguments, sense of the first exposition and conclusion, second exposition, and Lefebvre ultimately comes down on the side of Mary's perpetual virginity, marked by Swalwell as a more suitable exposition. The question of Peter's role as head of the church is taken up in Matthew 16, where Jesus famously says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Swalwell follows this discussion quite closely, perhaps finding a way to be more comfortable with events in his own day. He writes, the revelation to Peter was made by God the Father. And here the author argues that God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Son of God. So it's God, not Peter, who's the focus. Swalwell comments, from the confession of the rock, that is of Christ, he received the name Peter next to the claim that the rock is the unshakable and true faith that Christ is the son of the living God. Swalwell notes, Peter is not to be called the rock. A lifelong theological engagement with scripture in a religiously changing world seems to have characterized Thomas Swalwell. And here we come to what's perhaps the most challenging aspect of all. Cultivating responsiveness to God was at the heart of the Benedictine rule, which provided the overarching framework to Swalwell's life. He was remembered as a devout monk. There's an intriguing comment about our monk in the rites of Durham, a reminiscence on earlier practice written some 50 years after the dissolution of the priory. This text reports that there was a porch between the cathedral choir and the north transept, the porch having in it an altar and the rood or picture of our Savior, which altar and rood was much frequented in devotion of Dr. Swalwell, sometime monk of Durham. The book I've chosen as illuminating this facet of his life is Bonaventure's (coughs) Opuscula, a collection of spiritual, prescriptive, devotional, and catechetical works printed in 1495 and associated with the famous Franciscan teacher. Although not unique to this volume, a number of Swalwell's notes in this volume are in the second person singular, as if Swalwell is talking to himself, taking its advice to heart. Not only does the book bear witness to his own piety, it would also reflect on his work in the spiritual formation of young monks. As always, when we look over Swalwell's shoulder, we see that he is selective in what he annotates. For instance, there's a treatise on the Lord's Prayer, which we already know he cares about, but it's completely clean. There are a number of Marian tracts. Some of them are annotated, some of them aren't. Bonaventure's famous journey of the mind to God gets only a couple of notes, while the meditations on the life of Christ gets a great many. 
Overall in this volume, key themes that emerge include prayer, the mass, monastic virtues, and devotion to both Jesus and Mary. Monastic values come through clearly in Swalwell's notes on the soliloquy of St. Bonaventure. For example, God is to be invoked at the start of every work. The vanity of worldly things. Worldly things are like vain dreams. Exemplum on how difficult it is to serve righteousness. Against preferences and those who seek dignities. Against seeking worldly delights. Does this sound like a monastic? In the Meditations on the Life of Christ, a conversation between Mary and Elizabeth is reported in which Elizabeth says, Daughter, you think that all the grace I have I received without labor, but this is not so. Indeed, I tell you that no grace or virtue have I received from God without great labor, continual prayer, ardent desire, profound devotion, many tears, and much affliction. So in in addition to underlining that, Swalwell has written, take note and fear. The devout life really requires strenuous engagement. Devotion to Jesus may be seen in the marginalia in the Tractatulus on the five festivals of the infant Jesus. In the section on the solemnity of Christ's conception, Swalwell comments, thus conceive Christ in your mind. And the text here urges conceiving Christ through purging the mind, washing with contrition, raising the heart with ardent love, chaste meditations and devout thoughts. And then again he writes, how the soul of any person can conceive and bear Christ with Mary, name him with the angels, seek him with the Magi, present him in the temple with Mary and Joseph. And Swalwell highlights an exhortation in the text in the section on naming Jesus. O soul, whether you write or read or teach or do some other work, nothing will please you except Jesus. So in such annotations, I sense on Swalwell's part a desire to have his spiritual life focused on Christ and animated by love. What about Mary? The Meditations on the Life of Christ was a work known for promoting meditative empathy with Mary's suffering during the Passion. It's quite heavily annotated and would complement the rood or the picture of the crucifixion to which Swalwell was so devoted in the cathedral. As Holly Johnson has written on late medieval English Good Friday preaching, the sermons rarely call on the audience to suffer in the manner of Christ, that Christ suffers, but they often call on the audience to grieve in the way Mary grieves and to imagine itself participating in the events as involved and compassionate eyewitness. This is echoed by Swalwell in a note highlighting the benefits of such meditation. Behold this in general so that you may sorrow over the passion of the Lord. He further notes that this should lead one to penitence. He writes, note this saying well and underlines We ought not to be tired of thinking on these things which the Lord did not tire to bear. As the text proceeds through the details of Jesus' crucifixion, biblical verses are underlined following the narration of events and are augmented by various annotations. In conclusion... I was asked by a colleague recently what kind of picture Swalwell painted of the English church on the eve of the Reformation. Swalwell is by no means the full picture, but he does remind us that there were significant people in leadership who were loyal to the church, who were attentive to new developments in scholarship and theology, who wanted the church to live up to its existing ideals, 
who were diligent in the study of scripture and who were indeed devout. Swalwell's conscientious study and the breadth of his monastic life help illustrate why Mixon and Roast recently wrote that the study of religious life in the 15th and early 16th century is currently vital and compelling. They continue, we celebrate its diversity, its tensions, and its paradoxes. Some of that richness and vitality and even tension may be observed in the margins of Swalwell's books. He attended to developments in theology. He challenged the clergy to live up to their calling. He took up issues of the wider world and included the growing power of his king. He was committed to education and moral formation. He contributed to a contemporary culture of preaching and piety. And he looked, as Alan Piper once put it, to an indefinite future for the priory. His strategy in the face of change seems to have been to keep buying new books, (laughs) reading, studying, revisiting and adding to his notes, all the while living out his multifaceted responsibilities. Swalwell's diligent approach, high aspirations, and devout life did not save the priory, yet it may well have contributed to the relative religious conservatism of the North, which in turn contributed to the preservation of his many annotated books. I will close with just one more comment from Swalwell. In Dennis the Carthusian's commentary on the four Gospels, printed in 1532, the last printed of Swalwell's books, he writes, against adversities, lest we be troubled. The text under discussion here is John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Dennis comments, all who want to live devoutly in Christ will suffer persecution. Yet these will work in every good and they will prosper. In the end, they will be saved and their beatitude will be more complete and they will rest more happily in heaven to the degree that they are now vilified, tempted, and suffering. Swalwell's books bear witness that he took seriously the call to work in every good work. Although he died just before the dissolution took place, he surely saw it coming. May he rest in peace as he hoped and believed.